Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're using Women's History Month as an opportunity to highlight women in food who we're really excited about. We couldn't talk to 100 women for this show ourselves, of course, but we did talk to Charlotte Druckmann, an author and food writer who created the anthology Women on Food. More than 100 women contributed to Charlotte's book, and she describes for us what their experiences as chefs and food writers has been and how it might be different going forward. But first, before we talk about the experiences of many women in the food industry, we want to talk to one woman in Connecticut who is making a name for herself. Our first guest, Chrissy Tracy, started her plant-based journey early. She grew up eating a vegetarian diet and as a child baked mud pies for her neighbors in her backyard in Cheshire. Now she owns Chrissy's, a catering company, and Vegan Vibes, a meal prep service based in Danbury. She's also the first vegan chef at Bon Appetit magazine. We asked Chrissy to talk about her plan to spur change through representation and her recent work with Bon Appetit's Test Kitchen video series, which I was really excited about. Chrissy Tracy, thank you so much for joining us on Seasoned. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm ecstatic that you guys invited me to be on the show. (laughs) Chrissy, right off the bat, I've been watching videos of you all morning, and I have a question for you. Okay. Two questions for you. You were making a banh mi sandwich. Mm Mm-hmm. And you were racing against a 30-minute clock to make it faster than the restaurant could bring it to you, right? Yeah. But in the beginning, you stopped and let me call an expert and talk to her for four minutes. Now, come on. That's not part of the time, is it? That wasn't part of the time, thankfully. Oh, that's cheating. The thing is, we had a pre-call to understand that, you know, the in and out of banh mi sandwich so that I could make sure that what I made was a good representation of Vietnamese culture. So it was imperative, but had I done something else, that wouldn't have been part of the process, but I'm really glad I had the uh, chance to speak with Andrea Wynn. She's great. Well, it made you look awesome. You're like, hang on, in the middle of this time, let me just call an expert real quick because I got got time. I'm good. I'm not worried about this. (laughs) I love it. Well, Chrissy, it's sort of bittersweet having you on the show because – I discovered you, unfortunately, in the aftermath of every publisher going through a reorganization. Every every industry mm-hmm. has taken 2020 to reexamine how we do business, and representation has been such a part of that. And so I was so happy when I saw, um, you know, when I got my Bon Appetit magazine, I was like, well, hey, now, who's <laughs> this woman? And then she lives in, in Connecticut as well, so it was a win-win for all of us. I know the story of of the Instagram comment, but I wonder if you could really quickly just tell our listeners how you came to this post of video host for Bon Appetit magazine. Yeah, essentially, I mean, I've been following Bon Appetit for years, and I never really cared about, you know, the fact that maybe a publication wasn't plant-based or whatever, because I always veganize recipes. So if I saw something that had beautiful presentation or an interesting story behind it, I would veganize it, and that was fun for me. So when everything came out with the allegations against Bon Appetit and they had done, you know, that social media racial audit that a bunch of large companies were doing, I 
was reading the comments, I guess first and foremost, I wanted to say they, they did take responsibility for where they went wrong, as terrible, you know, as that may be. But at the same time, they also follow that up with a plan of action to do better. And I, to me, that's, that's the most important thing. Um, so I commented uh, amongst a bunch of, a sea of comments that were all negative, of course, just saying, you know, like, as long as you guys are trying to do better and learn and be a better company, that's all that matters. You know, we've all failed as humans at one point or the other. So that's the important takeaway. And I would love to be a part of the change and I'd love to work with you guys. That's it. I didn't expect it to go anywhere. Comment went semi-viral. It, had, it was met with uh, a lot of new followers, a lot of uh, other comments, uh, just kind of talking about how refreshing my perspective was, especially as a black woman. I don't think you know people would expect me to respond that way. That's just true to who I am. I'm always a second chance type of person. So I'm going to give that same grace to companies, to people, because we're all flawed. So that's how it came about a few weeks later. Talent manager was in my inbox, and I almost deleted the email. I, I have to note that. I don't even know if I told them this. I was like, Conde Noss Entertainment. Ah, they're, that's probably spam. They're not reaching out to me. And then I was like, let me just look again before I delete that. And it was it was the talent manager saying, hey, we, we checked out your Instagram, and uh, we'd love to speak with you. And a couple interviews later, I was in. That is a fantastic story. Um, and I, I, I love that you say, you know, you give people second chances and you kind of gave them the grace to do what hopefully is something that you that you love because you are how how many days or months are you into this gig? Um, oh, man, I filmed my first video in, I believe, August it was. And it was one of the first videos released. Okay. And uh, I just signed a one year contract with the company. Good for you. That's awesome. Fantastic. Congratulations. I'm very, very fortunate. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank I you. I love it. <laughs> Connecticut's very own. That's fantastic. I, I got to ask you, though, because one of the things we seem to just kind of glaze over there and the, the chef and me perked up, you talk about veganizing recipes. Yes. And you, you grew up a vegetarian, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Talk about veganizing recipes. What does that mean? So <laughs> what that means to me is I might look at for example, a chicken piccata recipe. And I'm like, ooh, that looks good. What are the components of this? You've got your protein, the chicken, the base. You've got capers. You've got a cream sauce. How can I make this vegan? And so I'll just find the different substitutes that make up all the components of the dish and recreate it with my own spin. So that's what veganizing means to me. That's what I do. I've tried to be vegan. I just... You have any idea how hard it is to be Puerto Rican and not eat pork? It's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, same with Jamaican, because that's yeah. my. I'm, I'm Jamaican. They eat a lot of pork, a lot of fish, a lot of chicken, a lot of goat. Mm -hmm. Rice and peas, though. I was just going to ask you to tell us about your your upbringing. Uh, as you mentioned, you're Jamaican. Tell us about that. Yeah. So my my parents moved to the states after they had my first sibling and we're pregnant with my second sibling. Yeah, they, they moved here to afford us, you know, a better opportunities because, you know, Jamaica is a third world country, as beautiful as it is. This was the best move for them. And they, you know, started out in Michigan, ended up settling in Cheshire, Connecticut. And um, yeah, they raised all seven kids on a vegetarian diet. Wow. And mind you, my mom was a teacher at the time. 
And my dad was a stay-at-home dad slash pastor. So it's not like money was flowing, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And they made it work. So the question I often get is, can a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet not only be sustainable to make you feel full, um, but can it be affordable? And I always say my family is a testament to the yes of that. It's a diet rich in grains and beans and legumes, veggies. Um, and I think it's just determining, you know, with where you live, uh, the best resources for, for finding the foods that are really going to provide you sustenance. How did you make the turn from being vegetarian to vegan? So about uh, five years ago, my parents went vegan. It might be a little over five years at this point. And uh, they did it because they, they are always studying health. And so my dad, you know, said, yeah, let's try this vegan diet. And so my mother and my father took that leap. And shortly after, they were like, Chrissy, you've got to do this. And I was like, mm, yeah, no, I like pizza too much. <laughs> And to this day, that is still my biggest craving because I have not perfected the vegan pizza yet. That's, that's hard. That's but hard. I will. I'm working, working on my cheese trials, but you'll never get cheese out of no cheese. That's just that's just fact. Truth. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> oh, you were talking about pizza, and my stomach was growling. Do you have a substitute for pizza? <laughs> um, I'm working on one. It's a uh, cashew-based mozzarella. Okay. Um, and it's pretty good. Are you sure? Because I'll be honest, you just said cat. I'm, I, you know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of a, I'm thinking of a modern a pizza. I'm thinking of a of a Sally's a pizza, and then I think cashew mozzarella. It'll never be the same. I'm willing to try though. I am willing to try cashewella. Cashewella. <laughs> Matsushu. Cashewella. I'm trying to figure out what we call it. Yeah, Matsushu. <laughs> right. I don't know. The thing is. At the end of the day, and I think this is what sets my cooking aside, is that I've kind of stopped focusing on making things taste exactly like and focused on just making really great, delicious food. So I'll give you a slice of pizza. It'll be delicious. It's not going to taste like mozzarella per se, but you're going to like that mouthfeel and the, the flavors that are coming in to your mouth when you take a bite of that pizza or whatever the dishes that I create. You can get really close to the taste of Parmesan, though, when you're making the, I'm air-quoting, nut cheese. You can get really close to it, though. You absolutely can. So, again, cashews, almonds. My go-tos for making nut-based Parmesan, um, you mix it with nutritional yeast and salt and a little garlic and onion powder, and it's very, very similar. So close. Because if you think about it, um, when you're thinking about Parmesan and some of those other harder cheeses, what you're getting is a lot of like that umami. Uh, it's like a, just a deeper depth. It's a flavor enhancer. It's like salt. So when you're able to use nutritional yeast, which has that property, and then combine that with like the saltiness, you get something similar enough. Once you process that all in a food processor, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's it works out great. I don't know. I think it's awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you ha- it's not like you've never eaten meat, though. You went through a little phase where you did eat some meat, right? Absolutely. Mm. It's actually funny because I was like very, so very few people knew about it. And when I had my interview with Connecticut Magazine, I was like, huh, should I say anything about it? And, and you know, I did because it's important to my journey and where I stand and who I am. And so there was like three months. It started when I went on a trip in Jamaica in, I believe it was 2016. My ex was Jamaican. And at the time, I, we went to his grandmother's house for dinner. And... 
she was eating me, obviously, like most Jamaicans. And um, she had like uh, oxtail and butter beans and some other curry dish. And, you know, she's like, eat up. And I'm like, oh, I'm vegetarian. I don't eat meat. (laughs) And, you know, she was totally offended. I don't want to, I don't like to offend people. So I was like, okay, I'll just nibble at it. And then I put it on his plate. All right, taste that. And I think what was interesting about that first time um, was that I was able to then take that research I, I had from testing out a couple of different things, a couple of different meats, and apply that to my vegan cooking, which also I think gives me a little bit of an edge over, say, a lifelong vegan. Um, because I would say my primary market of like customers or just like people in general are actually meat eaters who I'm trying to encourage to eat a little bit less meat and showing them, hey, you know, plant-based can be equally as delicious. Mm -hmm. So I think it was important because it helped me to realize something simply can't be recreated, whereas other flavors really can be. Like I make now a vegan oxtail and butter beans dish that makes my grandma super happy. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Let me ask you, because it just, it just popped in my head as you were talking. At being a vegetarian you know, your whole life and doing vegan, and then you went and started eating meat. Did, did your body feel any changes? Did you feel heavier or sluggish or more energetic? Did it affect you from doing that? I'll tell you why I would never know, and that's because I would taste things as like almost a research experiment. It was never a full meal, so it never affected me. I try to do the same thing with wine. I just taste it. It just never works out. Like, I, just <laughs> I try. I try. It's research. I'm tasting. But, yeah, yeah, something something really, and I think uh, it was easy for me to just be like, all right, yeah, I uh, did my research, had my fun. Now I can go on to experimenting with my veggie meats. And at the end of the day, I, I was almost like, I think just because I had never experienced it before, like certain textures just didn't sit well with me and grossed me out and... <laughs> So at the end of the day, um, it it worked out. And like, I'm definitely happy to be living in the path that I'm in right now. I feel so healthy, healthier than I've been. Like I suffered from a lot of gastrointestinal issues always like growing up. And so I had to make a lot of diet changes along the way. And unfortunately, anyways, it was, it became easier (laughs) to be vegan because cheese was no good for me. Mm. My body just rejected it. And uh, I never really ate milk or ice cream growing up much. Like we would have ice cream as a treat on a, on a family birthday. And that would be it. It was like, even though I grew up vegetarian, it was mostly a vegan diet. We never really ate eggs or anything like that. But we might eat like cupcakes or a cookie that has egg in it. Mm. So interesting. As I listen to you, I hear you say that a lot of it was experimentation because of your own health, right? The desire to become vegan. You feel like you've been the healthiest you've ever you've ever been. Mm-hmm. And even when I said to you, like, I tried to be vegan, I couldn't commit to the lifestyle. I just couldn't. It's hard for me, you know, to try to make three different meals. Mm-hmm. What, if any kind of change, are you hoping to spark as a result of being a vegan chef? in your community. And even beyond that, you have now a bigger community now that you have this platform of Bon Appetit. Um, And then I'll also throw in, you're Mm -hmm. also a black woman. So you're Mm -hmm. a woman, you're black, you're vegan. That's, that's like three trail trailblazing things right there. Yes. So the vegan transition started out as 
something I was trying for health and ended up sticking with. However, it's evolved into, I would consider myself an environmental vegan at this point. I care about the environment and sustainability and meat-based diets or the way that Americans especially consume meat is really bad for the environment. Um, meat production you know, accounts for almost 65% of all greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. And just understanding those things gave me a lens of, okay, but why? Why can't, and I'm not saying, you know, obviously I believe in the power of choice. So if, if it's not for you, it's not for you, right? The, the vegan diet. But I do think we can shift as a humanity to more of a plant-based diet, which just means limiting your meat intake, limiting your dairy intake so that we drive that demand down. We can stop deforestation we can stop, you know, water pollution and, and droughts that are occurring around the world. For example, in Peru, I, I believe I was reading uh, that asparagus actually, shockingly, is one of the bigger things that causes issues with the environment because it's causing a lot of the environments there to dry out because it requires so much water to produce one stock of that green veg. Asparagus? So that was also interesting. Yeah, asparagus. So there's a bigger thing to, to worry about, and that's not even just eat meat consumption, but also the choices you make when eating a vegan diet as well. Not everything is just about meat's impact on the environment. And even more so, if you swap a beef burger out for like an impossible burger or a lentil-based burger, that makes a big difference right there because mm-hmm. beef, you know, livestock is actually the, the bigger issue with environment and, and eating a meat-based diet in the first place. So I, my, my goal is to encourage people to, you know, be able to swap out a meal, a meal or two with a, a vegan or vegetarian option. And, you know, if you want to indulge later, indulge. But limiting that intake ultimately will help to limit animal suffering, have a better impact on the environment. And, I, and at the end of the day, I just think being more cautious about where your food comes from and doing your research um, is the most important thing when it comes to eating. You're listening to our conversation with Chrissy Tracy. Later in the hour, we talk to Charlotte Druckmann, editor of the anthology Women on Food, about some of the experiences of the chefs and food writers who contributed to the book. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, our conversation with Chrissy continues and gets even more personal when we reflect on the things that helped her get through 2020. And I had to take a step back and say, okay, (laughs) something's got to change here. So that plus, I mean, I'll be completely honest, therapy has been a huge help. And of course, we'll ask her about her favorite vegan restaurants in the state. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Connecticut chef Chrissy Tracy. She's an entrepreneur. She owns Chrissy's, a catering company, and Vegan Vibes, a meal prep service based in Danbury. In our first segment, we left off talking about what motivates Chrissy's vegan cooking. She describes herself as an environmental vegan, but there is another motivation for eating a plant-based diet. As a black woman, generationally, 
black Americans suffer from heart disease and heart failure at large. And that's from a diet perspective. And, and I think a big issue is actually food deserts and lack of access to fresh fruits and vegetables. I'll tell you what's interesting. Um, I donate meals in New Haven, Connecticut, whenever I can. I haven't been able to over the past month because it's just been insane with filming with Bon Appetit and everything. But typically, I'll try and do that at least twice a month. Drop off at least 20 meals to food insecure families through the school system there. There's about 1,400 families that are not getting enough food in the week. And I reached out to my mom because she's the superintendent of New Haven Public Schools. And I said, Mom, how can I get meals, extra meals into the hands of families that need it? And she was like, Chrissy, like, honestly, I don't think there's going to be a place for the food you make there. And I was so sad and so discouraged. She gave me the contact of a woman that I've been coordinating with. And and I said, hey, listen, I'm a vegan chef. I do this. I I have extra meals I want to donate. She told me, you know, majority of these families are looking for access to more plant-based options. So they were actually thrilled with the idea that they'd be getting a vegan meal. Hooray! So that was a big win, just being able to provide more food to communities that need it most. And I'm hoping, you know, I've been reaching out to a couple of restaurants. At the end of the week, restaurants waste so much food. Uh, but And I'm not even going to say by no fault of their own, especially because we're in the middle of COVID-19. Everything is un- a little bit unpredictable, even though things are getting better and on the up and up. So instead of wasting food, make a meal out of whatever you have and let's donate these meals to the community that needs it. Yeah. And it, it's been tough. I haven't really gotten the support I anticipated at this time, but I'm not going to give up. And at the very least, I'm just going to keep doing what I can do. You know, it's it's tough, Chrissy, what you're talking about there with restaurants and donating food. There's so many rules in place. You know, I, I just I, I'm I just friended you on Instagram, so follow me back. I got a friend uh who does Absolutely. Rethink Food NYC and that's exactly what they do is they go get food from restaurants leftovers and they repurpose it to be able to give back to the community. It's really, really cool what they're doing. Oh wow. But talking about restaurants and chefs, did you train? Did you go to school? Did you work in restaurants? Where did you get training from? I am primarily a self-taught chef. Uh, I grew up cooking with my mom in the kitchen. That's my origins of, of making food and cooking with my neighbor whose family was from Argentina. Her mom would teach me how to make empanadas and all these different things. It was really cool. What ended up happening is when I had to decide what I wanted to do for, for college, I had a choice. Go to culinary school and deal with having to prepare meat-based products and, and having to go out of my comfort zone or figuring it out on my own. And it ended up being a situation of, I went to school for technology and business, and I started my own business and um, started doing private chef experiences and catering. And that's been the like primary teachings that I've gotten have just been from, you know, what I've learned and what I've experienced. Um, But now I'm enrolled in um, a plant-based food academy online, which has been really cool and super helpful. It's called like Food Future Institute and it's started by a massive restaurateur named Matthew Kenny, who Mm -hmm. goes around and veganizes all these restaurants or like provides a vegan menu for all these restaurants worldwide. Yeah, I've heard of this guy. He's really cool. So, and it's really high quality content. Um, It's go at your own pace. So that's been really good for, for me and my schedule. I did work at Delegno slash Nolo for a couple of months, like six months back in 2018. 
Um, and I was running a Meatless Monday program there, which actually garnered a lot of community attention. It was awesome. It was a great experience. I learned how to make really great pizza. I got experience from that, lots of experience from that. The chef there, Josh, taught me a ton. I'm very thankful for that. That's been my experience. I mean, now I run a vegan meal prep business in the state, and um, I've partnered actually with uh, another meal prep business called Nala's Kitchen. Um, I'm great friends with those. With oh, them. no I know way. Rebecca very well. Rebecca's a very good friend of mine. Yeah, we just, we just partnered up um, essentially to just try to combine our efforts to provide meal prep services to everyone in the state. And uh, beyond that, I, I started shipping throughout the Northeast. So it's been really cool to just collaborate and work with different people and, you know, garner these new relationships and new partnerships. Uh, I'm a businesswoman. That's what I like to do. So it's it's been really rewarding. And I still have a lot to learn, but I don't let that get in the way of my ambitions. And I think that's important. Nice. Can you talk to us a little bit about your work with the Black Business Alliance in Connecticut? Yeah. So in the summer, same time around where I reached out to Bon Appetit and everything, I, I actually created a, a business directory for Black businesses in the state called Black Owned Connecticut. And essentially, it was just to uplift and support uh, Black owned businesses that a lot of people otherwise would have not known existed. So I created this business directory um, and we highlight, you know, and feature different business owners. And uh, shortly after I created it, the Black Business Alliance of Connecticut reached out to me to partner up um, and kind of combine our resources because they were thinking of making a Black business directory as well. But what was cool and unique about that was I don't have the resources to do everything I want to do, but they do. And, and I'm not talking about just monetary resources. I'm talking about knowledge and uh, education. So they are able to, if a business comes to me and says, hey, I need help with uh, marketing or restructuring my business, I'm able to then send them to the Black Business Alliance of Connecticut, and they're able to get free training on how to make their businesses better or even how to get legal. A lot of businesses don't have the certain legal things in place because they, they simply don't have the education around it. So my whole thing is to just make sure that everyone's on the same page when it comes to opportunity and education through whatever means possible. So that's where that partnership came about. That's fantastic. Um, Plum mentioned your Instagram page, which is beautiful. <laughs> But it's not just about food. It's about wellness. And 2020 was a challenging one for, I think, all of us. I, w I will go yep. out on a limb and, and say that for about all of us. I mean, you're really going on a limb there, my <laughs> I know. I know. Um, but what, what change helped you or allowed you to look at life through a different lens? I'll say movement. Movement. It's the single biggest thing that can help with your mental health. And it's something I wanted to ignore for a long time. And my partner was like, yeah, that's not something you can ignore. I promise you, you will feel better if you are more mindful of how much you're moving on a regular basis. So just um, making sure I dedicate time every day to move, exercise, go for a walk outside, enjoy the sunshine. Because so often it's so easy to just bury yourself in your phone or the, the computer and get lost in work. And that's always been what I'm used to, just go, go, go. And I had to take a step back and, and say, okay, <laughs> something's got to change here. So that plus, I mean, I'll be completely honest, therapy has been 
a huge help for me. And that's another thing uh, in the, in the black community, you know, therapy is, seen, is often seen as something that shows your weakness. Like you're weak if you go to therapy and that's just something I can't get behind and something that if I ever have children, that that'll never be what I pass down to them because it is definitely helpful to be able to talk to someone that helps you reframe the way that you're thinking. And so I was lucky, lucky enough to find a therapist that was on the same page as me and helped me through a lot of tough times. And here I am still standing. And at the end of the day, I, there's a lot of opportunities that came my way in, in the past year. And I'm, I'm extremely grateful, fortunate, and just beyond thankful for everything that's occurred so far. Still standing. You're thriving. You're not standing. Come on. It's awesome. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us, because I think it is very important in black and brown communi- communities. I'm very transparent about the fact that I've spent my entire 20s and 30s and 40s in therapy because mm-hmm. Latinos, you don't you don't go to a therapist. Think that, yeah. You know, you talk to the, you talk to the priest or you talk to, you know, uh-huh. pray about it. <laughs> and I think the more we the more we talk about it, then the less stigma there will be attached to it. And once you once you handle mental health, I think it gets rid of a lot of other societal problems that so many of us are dealing with. So I appreciate that you that you opened up and, and told us about that. I think our listeners will benefit from that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very cool. Very, very cool. All right. What are your favorite restaurants? Hit us so we can go. We got to talk about it. There's so many great vegetarian restaurants in the state. Okay. Give it to us. Ion, Middletown. Yeah. Flora, West Hartford. Yeah. Been there. And they're cool because they're plant-based but not entirely vegan. So they, it's kind of like a place where you can go with their, where there's an option for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, vegan Ahava food truck. Don't know if you guys have ever had that, but it is in New Haven. Have not. I'll tell you the truth is I don't really eat out that much because I'm always cooking at home. So it's been a while since I've eaten out at a vegan establishment. I lament the fact that you were at one of my closest friends' restaurants. Jess Bankston at Terrain. You had a pop-up night. I did. To rave reviews, and I couldn't <laughs> go. I was I was very sad, but it looked delicious. There might be more things in the future. We'll see. I, I really enjoyed that pop-up. It, it went really well, and uh, people really loved the vegan cacio y pepe dish I, I created, and I've also done that dish for Bon Appetit. It's still on the menu now. Now it's on the menu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so very exciting. I love it. It's great. Chrissy, you're fantastic. We're lucky to have you in our state. We're so happy. We're so proud of you. We just, you're, you're killing it. And it's amazing. <laughs> and you're such a genuine human being. We really, really appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us here on Season. Thank you. I appreciate you guys having me and uh, look forward to speaking in the future. And cheese pizza does not count as vegetarian. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> that was Chrissy Tracy, the self-taught chef and caterer serving up vegan meals in Connecticut and beyond. Follow her on Instagram so you never miss a pop-up event or video. She's at Eat With Chrissy. That's C-H-R-I-S-S-Y on Instagram. We are cheering you on, Chrissy. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we talk to Charlotte Druckmann about the essays and interviews and takeaways from her anthology, Women on Food. Just give us the space. Give us the freedom to write what we want, how we want, instead of trying to put us in these boxes all the time. You're listening to Seasons. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Our next guest, Charlotte Druckmann, is a journalist, food writer, and the creator of Food 52's Tournament of Cookbooks. She's the author of several cookbooks, including Stir, Sizzle, Bake, about cooking with cast iron skillets, Kitchen Remix, a guide to reimagining pantry staples, and Skirt Steak, a book about women chefs which she wrote in 2012. Charlotte also co-authored Cooking Without Borders with New York chef Anita Lowe. The book we want to talk with Charlotte about today is her anthology, Women on Food. Women on Food collects essays, interviews, and Q&As from more than 100 writers, chefs, critics, and TV stars, all women in the food world whose experiences truly run the gamut. To give you an idea of who some of Charlotte's contributors are, we're talking Soleho, Priya Krishna, Osai Endelin, Rachel Ray, Von Diaz, Nigella Lawson, Dory Greenspan, Kim Severson, Samin Nosrat, and Christina Tosi. That's some serious talent right there. And that is just a sample. Some have struggled to be seen as equals in professional kitchens or in the media, print and television. Some contributors, but not all, which is important to say, recounted incidents of sexism and racism. The food industry doesn't exist in a vacuum, of course, and like all industries, examining equity right now, it could do a lot better. All of the women in Charlotte's anthology have made names for themselves in the food world despite being underestimated, and all are worthy of celebration. Charlotte Truckman, welcome to Seasoned. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you for having me. This is a special um, episode because Plum is going to be an honorary woman because we're honoring mm-hmm. all the women in the culinary world. Listen, I'm totally fine with that. I was raised by women. Like, I... I, it's, <laughs> it's, I love it. It's fantastic. <laughs> but we are we're so pleased uh, that you have this, this anthology, all these different female voices in one space. What was the impetus behind making this book? The impetus was anger. Which I think, I mean, I know for myself has always been more motivating than most emotions. And I think that that's true for a lot of women. I think we're very productive when we're angry. It kind of started with the groundswell of Me Too, but it was when we got to the bad men of food, Mario Battalion, Ken Friedman, and John Bash. I don't even know why I'm naming them because I would rather just ignore them. But when we got there, a switch flipped in me because it was the first time I started to think about, or I let myself think about, I should say, what it was like to be a woman in food media. Because we did a very, I mean, I don't want to say, we didn't do a great job. There's still many left of of trying to sort of ferret out the bad actors in restaurants. But there are many in food media. And not just that, there have just been so many ways in which I think women have been held back. And in the one area of journalism that we were, we were almost, you know, siloed into is the one place that we were allowed to practice journalism, because everyone thought cooking was for women, and it was very servicey. And initially, it was, you know, things like recipe columns and advice and and stuff like that. And then the more food became entertainment and the more food became a potential ad (laughs) money in, you know, in terms of publishing and and television and things like that, you saw more and more men coming in and starting to take over all of those positions. And if you're looking at it from the writer's point of view, getting all the really good stories, getting all the profiles, you know, or becoming the editors in chief where before women had been, 
And I just thought about that. And I just started to get really angry about it. And, and you know, when you're a journalist, you're always covering whatever your beat is. You're not, you don't necessarily think about, as I've said a bunch of times, you don't think about what's happening in your own backyard. And I think it was the first time I just was like, started to really think about it. And then I thought, if this is how I feel, if these are the microaggressions or macroaggressions that I've experienced, I have to imagine that other women have. And I also imagined that Black women and women of color had experienced it many fold times more than I had. And so that was where it started. It was, can we reclaim this turf that was already ours? And also this idea that I've always believed that if we were given the freedom to write, especially from the writer's point of view. I mean, the, there, are, there are so many women in that book that aren't writers, but it started with writers because that's where I was coming from. And it was that idea that, you know, if you would just give us sort of like, I feel like that, you know, pass me the baton, just give us the space, give us the freedom to write what we want, how we want, instead of trying to put us in these boxes all the time and hemming us in, what would happen? if we were given that freedom, we would produce something that was probably better than most food writing out there now. And personally, biasly, I think that I have proven my point. I think we did it. But that was that is a long answer to your question of what was the motivation behind the anthology. I think you're spot on with all of those things in terms of being a woman, in terms of being a journalist, um, and finding the space for all of that. I love that there's 115 writers, chefs, critics, television stars, and eaters, because we cannot forget <laughs> the very the very reason why we do this show, the very reason why Plum does, you know, his, his actual profession and what you do is because we all eat. Yeah, because we love the food. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's funny just to hear he's talking about this stuff. And yeah, I, I hate for anyone to feel like that in the kitchen. And I, I'm specifically very sensitive to it as I have three daughters and even that aside, it's just not right to begin with. And I think maybe I've been pretty fortunate in the places that I've worked growing up. Like it's never, I mean, as long as you can hold down your station, black, white, red, purple, male, female, unicorn, can you do it? Uh, you know, it's it's sad to hear these stories about it. And I'm just not sure maybe if it's a generational thing. I mean, because now it would it, it would just, it's not even in, in the in the rule book anymore. Have you seen a big change as, since something like the, your book has come out? Have you noticed it changing kind of a little bit in a professional kitchen? The strange thing is I think COVID will end up having a greater impact on how kitchens are structured and on, on what people call the culture of, of the kitchen or the culture of the of restaurant businesses than I think all of these conversations about sexism and, and gender and, and bigotry had only because the structure of the kitchen in, in terms of the kind of French tradition that has dictated the standard. The brigade. Yeah, the, the brigade, the standard, I always say restaurant with a capital R. And, and, and I'm in New York City where that template was originally appropriated and then brought into the United States. For that reason, that brigade system, because women were not allowed. So just the way it was set up, even 
ergonomically, physically, if you're just looking at it at, at, in the most literal of ways, it will, women were not welcome. Yeah. And that holding down your station thing is also, you know, this idea of everyone kind of having to be the same. And even just the fact that that's how it's set up and we're not going to do it another way. And I think what you start to see when people question the way humans are placed within that structure, they also start to question just the actual structure of it. You know, the, the way the way stations look, the way people are given jobs. Like you, I, I always thought it was great that it shaped Nice. They didn't have really set stations. Everyone took turns. They rotated. So you were never in one position. So there wasn't even that kind of thing where it was like your garde manger and you felt somehow lesser than the person who was doing sauce, for example. You know, um, they changed that. They shook that up. I think with COVID, because restaurants have been struggling so much, they've been forced to make do with even less than they had before. But I think they've also started to think more about feeding their communities and going back to being hyper local in the sense of really being a source of uh, community support and also leaning on that community to support them in turn. And I think that that's going to end up changing. I mean, I could be wrong about that, but I think just in terms of more equity and a kinder and more creative approach to how kitchens are set up and how people are are hired or who has what job. I think I think that's going to change more because of of COVID probably and the economy which tends to drive more things than than philosophy even if the philosophy is is rooted in fairness. Several food writers described feeling relegated to write about certain topics for books and magazines, baking, comfort food, family dinners, recipes, some contributors shared stories of editors discouraging or flat-out rejecting pitches having to do with global cuisines, animal butchery, and grilling. Or as hospitality attorney Jasmine Moy says, quote, anything to do with fire or mammals with their faces still attached, end quote. I realized that I feel I'm supposed to write about certain things and that I probably hadn't pitched stories that I might have wanted to write because I just sort of assumed that people wanted certain things from me. And that's been really limiting. When I started out, I was not someone who wrote recipes. My background is much more of the, the writing journalism theory background. Everyone seemed to want recipes and that that's what they wanted from food writers. And when I break that down, it's women food writers. People wanted us to do recipe work, recipe stories, or just, you know, very lifestyle-ish stories. So stories that always were uh, service-driven and positive and upbeat and, and not necessarily going very deep, <laughs> not asking a lot of questions, not particularly analytical, uh, yeah, not necessarily as, as nuanced as you might want as a writer. I definitely think that there's pigeonholing. And, and I think there's especially pigeonholing, by the way. I mean, I think white women have much more freedom even in that space of recipe writing and stories about recipes than I think women of color do or black women do. That's been even more pigeonholed and a smaller, smaller box for sure. Author Christina Gill wrote, Quote, black men and women are almost exclusively restricted to soul food and or Southern food, as if these are the only topics we could possibly have expertise in. End quote. 
I don't know how I breezed right past the lexicon. Can you just for for our listeners explain to them why you decided to have this at the front of the book? Because it's 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 pretty brilliant, I think. <laughs> I always think about how books will have like even textbooks, even sometimes if you're reading a saga, a novel saga that's written in any kind of jargon or, you know, like old English or whatever it is, you'll usually have a glossary of terms. Or like a family tree, if it's a family saga. I put it up in the front because I was thinking about how that's often something that, you know, in, in the start of a book, just so that you have your frame of reference for what's to come, even though it's not. Those words then do not tend to show up in the rest of the book because the point is we hate them. That was one of the reasons I put it up there. I also wanted to make the statement up front that this was going to be both serious and fun. And so that seems like a good place to start with that. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. It's very tongue in cheek because you say, are there any words or phrases you really wish people would stop using to describe women, chefs, all caps, and then in parentheses, you write, or really women, period. And some of the some of the contributors say, you know, I'd like to get rid of tiny or trim or gorgeous or sexy or best female chef as a participation trophy. I think um, whenever I see the adjective woman attached to a profession, I always like to say, or maybe just public address announcer or host of a or vice president of the United States. Yeah. Nothing gendered. Yeah. And the clear winner was badass. That got the most votes for hated to the point where I wrote an obituary for it. People really, and now whenever I see anyone calling, especially a woman, a badass, but even anyone, I just cringe because of that. Yeah. You know, but a lot of these, a lot of female chefs that I know personally that's how they refer to themselves as well. Yeah. Well, I think the problem with it is that, I mean, first of all, it's a word that came out of black slang and black culture and was appropriated as so many <laughs> words and phrases have been what by white guys who then started calling themselves and each other badasses. It used to have a strong current of rebelliousness behind it. And once it got taken over, it just meant, really cool or whatever badass is supposed to mean. And when it gets applied to women, it's basically saying you're cool because you're not acting like a woman. We're taking this masculine word and we're going to use it for you because you're an exception. It's not really a compliment to a woman to take a word that is so masculine and say, now you count because we think you're badass. You know what I mean? Like there's an interesting binary going on there. It's not a neutral word in that that sense. One of the best parts of the book is a section of thank yous from the contributors to the women who've made a difference in their careers. It's pretty powerful stuff. I love that section too. A lot of the book is really critical. You know, a lot of those questions are critical and they're coming from the negative, we hate this word or this sucks. And I just thought it would be really nice to have a place where we're celebrating something and celebrating each other. And then also bringing in women of past generations to honor the legacy of female food writing, which is really the legacy of food writing, period. Right. So I really wanted that in there. And again, too, for chefs, it gave them, you know, a chance to go back and give some love to other women in the restaurant industry if they wanted to. So And I'll tell you, it's just a cool thing. And by the way, if you when you check out the book, Helen Rosner's note to Sheila Lukens will make readers cry for sure. Yeah. 
do you see there's progress being made? Are we making progress? And what can we do to make progress? <laughs> when we come out of COVID, there's going to be this phase of just cleaning up after the apocalypse. You know what I mean? Like, I think everyone's sort of coming out of their caves and seeing what's left. I'm hopeful that out of that, we're going to start to see a rebuilding and that the rebuilding is a chance to really change how things look in every way, what restaurants are, how they are funded, you know, who works in them, how they're set up, who's in charge. I am hopeful about that. You know, I, I always believe that it's, you see the most creativity, the most innovation in the scrappy stuff. And we're definitely at a time where people are being forced to be scrappy. Time will tell. Time will tell. And thankfully, you're out there fighting the good fight for us. So we appreciate that. Charlotte Druckmann, we can't thank you enough for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I had a great time talking to you guys. That was Charlotte Druckmann. She is the editor of the anthology Women on Food. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyanakin and Katie Talarski. Our interns are Zakina Collier and Joseph Vasquez. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.